great. You've been loading up on things from Walmart? Yeah, I used my new Capital One Walmart Rewards card. It earns unlimited 5% back on everything I buy from Walmart online. Say what? 5% back. Say what? 5% back. Say what now? 5% back. With what? The Capital One Walmart Rewards card. Earn unlimited rewards, including 5% back at Walmart online on top of Walmart's everyday low prices. What's in your wallet? Terms and exclusions apply. Capital One N.A. You are listening to the Already Gone podcast, sharing stories of the missing, the murdered, the mysterious, and the lost. Before we begin, a geographical note for listeners. This story is set primarily in mid-Michigan, in the cities of Lansing, our state capital, and East Lansing, a town which is not surprisingly directly east of Lansing, and the home of Michigan State University. We are 75 miles, or 120 kilometers north of Ypsilanti, where John Norman Collins terrorized a college community just seven years earlier. Today's episode discusses rape, assault, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. New Year's Eve, 1976, my daughter Martha came downstairs to kiss me goodbye before she headed out the door to babysit. That would be the last time I would see her alive. Two days before, she'd broken her engagement to Don Miller, and he talked her into just remaining friends. We had no idea of what that simple decision to remain friends would mean. Was the ex-boyfriend involved? Everybody, including the police, thought he was. He should have been a safe person because he was a neighbor. After all, he was no stranger. He even went to the same high school, lived in the neighborhood, went to the same church. That was Sue Young, the mother of the first victim, talking about the last time she saw her 19-year-old daughter, Martha, and her family's relationship with the man that murdered Martha and three other women before he was captured. Today's story is similar to that of John Norman Collins. We have a college student attacking women, but this killer isn't as discriminating as Collins, and he strikes much closer to home. Return with me to New Year's Eve, 1976, the end of the bicentennial in the United States. The nation is in flux. Michigan-born President Gerald Ford is finishing out his term in the White House. He took over as vice president when the sitting vice president, Spiru Agnew, resigned. Ford ascended to the presidency when Richard Nixon left office in disgrace. Gerald Ford is the only person to serve as vice president and president without ever being elected to the office. After the chaos of Nixon's second term, the nation was ready for change and chose a Navy veteran, nuclear engineer, and one-time peanut farmer to lead the country. We don't know who she voted for, but 19-year-old Martha Sue Young won't live long enough to see Jimmy Carter take office. Jimmy Carter wasn't the only man taking office in January. East Lansing and Lansing are in Ingham County, and Ingham County had a brand new prosecutor effective January 1st, 1977. His name is Peter Hoke, and his new job started with the news of the disappearance of Michigan State University student Martha Sue Young. The initial missing persons report came in to East Lansing police officer Kenneth Ouellette from a man named Gene Miller. Miller and Ouellette were previously acquainted. 
They knew each other from a sportsman's club, and Miller was calling to report that his son's fiancée, Martha Young, was missing. It was Martha's mother, Sue Young, who asked him to make the call. I don't think Gene Miller mentioned that Young was his son's former fiancée during their conversation. When police took the report on the missing girl, they learned that Young had spent the evening babysitting for a neighbor, accompanied by her former fiancé, Don Miller. When police questioned him, the quiet, clean-cut young man gave an account of their evening, and it ended with him dropping Martha off at her home. She'd been sitting on the front porch when he'd driven away. The situation between Martha Young and Don Miller was awkward. They'd gotten engaged earlier in the year. She was 19 years old, living at home with her parents, and studying French at Michigan State University. Don was older, 22. He also lived at home, and he too studied at Michigan State. His major was criminal justice. The Young family and Miller family attended the same church, and Martha was friends with Don's sister before the couple started dating. Around Christmas of 1976, Martha had second thoughts about marrying Don. Martha's mother sat her down and said, I support your decision to call off the engagement, but I'd like to know why. And Martha told her, Don is 22 years old, and aside from getting a summer job in 1976, he'd never really worked and didn't seem to want to. She also didn't like his approach to school. Martha enjoyed learning and was enthusiastic about her major. Don didn't study and didn't apply himself. Finally, Don wanted to stay at home all the time. Martha wanted to go out to meet people, do things. He didn't approve of this and preferred that she stay at home as he did. Martha said that she loved Don, but they weren't a good match, and it wasn't the type of marriage she was hoping for. The breakup, just two days before New Year's Eve, appeared amicable. Don insisted that she keep the ring. He asked to spend New Year's Eve together, and she agreed. They were still friends, after all. When police arrived at the young home on New Year's Day to take a missing persons report, they assumed Martha would turn up, that like other college students before her, she'd gone out to party and maybe overindulged. Perhaps she was sleeping it off at a friend's house. Then they learned that Martha, like her former fiancé, was religious, conservative. She didn't drink or smoke. She wasn't known to party or stay out late. Her failure to come home was out of character and of deep concern to her family. Law enforcement took the report and reassured the family that Martha would turn up. But they were wrong. Law enforcement was also curious. How did Martha disappear from her front porch? Was Donald, her slightly built, eyeglass-wearing former fiancé, telling them the whole story? Any investigator will tell you to start with the last person known to have seen the victim, and that person was 22-year-old Donald Eugene Miller. Miller's story about their evening didn't add up. Then it changed. The inconsistencies in his story told law enforcement that he was lying. The lead investigator, East Lansing Police Detective Rick Westgate, was convinced that Miller was involved, but with no signs of foul play and no body, they couldn't prove anything, and they had to wait. Miller was enrolled in the criminal justice program at Michigan State University. After graduating in the spring of 77, he took a job as a security guard and continued living at home with his parents in East Lansing. Law enforcement made Martha's case a priority. With the memories of the co-ed killer still fresh after only a few years, students and their families were worried. 
The case went nowhere until October of 1977, when hunters discovered a set of clothing in a field in Bath Township, just north of East Lansing. The clothing was laid out on the ground, pants and a top, with the undergarments inside of them as if the wearer of the clothes had evaporated, leaving the clothing behind. The discovery alarmed police. Martha Sue Young did not evaporate. Someone made her disappear and left her clothes in a field to be discovered. Her purse, with her driver's license inside, was located nearby. Prosecutor Hoke said of the discovery, quote, We were convinced we were dealing with some kind of psychopath. They were dealing with a psychopath. And they had no idea how bad things would become. If Bath Township sounds familiar to you, it was the site of the deadliest act of school violence in American history. Ninety years ago, on May 18, 1927, Andrew Kehoe, the treasurer of Bath Consolidated Schools, detonated bombs in the Bath schoolhouse. He killed 38 students, six adults, and injured 58 others. This is a terrible and a tragic story, and it's one we'll delve into on another day. Back in 1977, police have Martha's clothing, but they do not have her body, and they do not have any answers. Donald Eugene Miller continues to live his life as a free man, and it will be almost a year before anything else happens in this case. Dinner is a time to connect, nourishing the body and the mind. Enjoying a meal that is affordable, flavorful, and easy to prepare is a wonderful thing to experience. I'm not a seasoned chef, but easy-to-follow recipes and pre-portioned ingredients help me create a restaurant-quality meal at a fraction of the price. At less than $10 per person per meal, we're enjoying dishes like Parmesan-crusted chicken with creamy fettuccine and roasted broccoli, or spinach and fresh mozzarella pizza with olives, bell peppers, and ricotta salada. One of my favorite things about Blue Apron is that I can customize the menu, so I'm serving meals the whole family will enjoy. Blue Apron also offers a freshness guarantee, meaning you get the right amount of fresh, ready-to-cook ingredients for each recipe. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash already gone. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash already gone. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. The summer of 1978 was a welcome break from the brutal winter Michigan had endured. In January of 1978, a historic snowstorm struck dumping 36 inches or 90 centimeters of snow on the ground, bringing the state to a halt for a few days and taking several lives. When the sun began to shine and temperatures rose, people were ready to embrace the warmth of summer. The sunshine also brought out a serial killer, who continued his grim work starting with the disappearance of 27-year-old Marita Choquette. Employed as an editorial assistant at a local TV station, Choquette was last seen on June 15, 1978. That evening, Marita had dinner with a friend and returned to her apartment in Grand Ledge, which is just west of Lansing. Around 8 p.m., a neighbor saw her take her trash to the dumpster. Marita would not be seen alive again. In the morning, Marita's car, a yellow opal, was in the parking lot at the TV station where she worked, 
but it wasn't parked in her usual spot. Instead, it was at the rear of the lot. Friends and family reported her missing immediately. Almost two weeks later, Choquette's mutilated body was found by a farmer in Holt, Michigan. There were concrete blocks on and around her remains. Her hands had been cut off and left near her body. Her death was violent, gruesome. What Sue Young, the mother of missing Michigan State University student Martha Young, noticed was that Marita looked a lot like her daughter. Same height, same hair color and style, and a similar build. As police were processing the grim scene in Holt, another call came in. A Michigan State University student, 21-year-old Wendy Bush, was missing. She'd last been seen at the south end of campus near Case Hall. Police found themselves struggling to keep up with a violent predator who was escalating. Six weeks later, the killer would claim another victim, 30-year-old Christine Stewart. Stewart was a middle school science teacher, and she'd taken her car to a repair shop the morning of August 14th. She dropped the car off about 9.30 in the morning and decided to walk home. The happily married school teacher did not make it home. Like Marita Choquette, Christine bore a resemblance to Martha Young. Stewart's husband was a builder who worked with many tradesmen. It was one of these tradesmen who spotted Chris walking home that morning. It was the last time she would be seen alive. The Lansing area was panicked. Sure, Martha and Marita disappeared at night, and Wendy was last seen on campus. But this, this was a brazen daylight attack in a supposed-to-be safe neighborhood. People were frightened, and law enforcement could not move fast enough to find the man who was preying on local women. Unlike the co-ed killer, Miller was attacking women in their homes and neighborhoods. Meanwhile, Sue Young was in regular contact with the police. She was certain that her daughter's former fiancé was not only behind the disappearance of her child, but the murder of Marita Choquette and the disappearances of Wendy Bush and Christine Stewart. On August 15th, the day after Christine Stewart disappeared, Donald Miller was driving around looking for another victim. But there was no one on the street that appealed to him, and he found himself at a house in Delta Township, another city just outside Lansing. Miller parked his car, a brown Olds Cutlass, in the driveway and let himself inside. Around 3 p.m., Lisa and Randy Gilbert came home from school. Their first task when they arrived was to call their stepmother, Donna Irish, and let her know they'd arrived safely. Once the call was made, Randy went across the street to play at the creek. When 14-year-old Lisa went to find her brother, she left the house for about 10 minutes to locate him. When she returned home, there was a brown car parked in the driveway. She didn't recognize the car, but she wasn't overly concerned. They'd had workers in and out of the house for weeks attending to various improvements and repairs, so she assumed it belonged to one of the workers. Lisa went into the house and found a young man standing there. Is your father home? he asked her, and she told him no, he wouldn't be home till after six. Lisa wasn't frightened, but she should have been, because when he heard her answer, the stranger produced a knife, grabbed her by the throat, and forced her into the master bedroom, where he used her father's neckties to blindfold her and tied her hands. He paused his work to close the drapes in the bedroom, and even returned to the front door to close and lock it. When he returned to the bedroom where she was helpless on the floor, he stripped her and sexually assaulted her. After the assault, he used a belt to strangle Lisa, but the belt snapped. A broken belt didn't stop him. It only slowed him down. 
He cast the belt aside and used his hands to choke her. Miller didn't hear the back door of the house open, but he did hear the screen door slam shut, causing him to release his grip on Lisa's neck. Miller picked up the knife and went to see who had interrupted his work. At the bottom of the stairs, he came face to face with 12-year-old Randy Gilbert. Miller greeted him with a hello and walked past the boy before grabbing him around the neck and plunging the knife into his chest. Their home, formerly a sanctuary, was now a scene of horror. Donald Miller was stabbing Randy Gilbert as he dragged him up the stairs. Meanwhile, Lisa Gilbert was naked, restrained, and struggling to stay alive. Fortunately, in his haste to attack her, Miller hadn't tied Lisa securely. She freed her feet and ran out of the house, screaming for help. Still naked, she ran into the road, stopping a pickup truck. A man is trying to kill my brother. Hearing this, the driver of the pickup, James Reagan, pulled off the road and ran up the driveway of her home. He raced inside to help. Meanwhile, the Delta Township Fire Chief, Ken Doran, was also driving by. He recognized Lisa Gilbert and stopped to see what was going on. As Doran exited his car, Reagan yelled, Help her! I'm going in! And as Reagan went up the driveway, Don Miller came running out of the house. Reagan asked him if the boy was okay. Miller, wearing sunglasses, responded, I guess so, and got in his car. Reagan realized this was the perpetrator, this was not a good Samaritan, and tried to stop Miller, trying to open the passenger door of the car, yelling and pounding on his vehicle. Miller started the car and backed away, knocking Reagan to the ground. Doran made a note of the license plate as he attended to Lisa, bringing her into his vehicle and radioing for police in an ambulance. Once in the house, a bruised Reagan found Randy Gilbert, injured and covered in blood, but still alive. Another neighbor stopped to help, Mrs. Kraft. She was driving past with her 13-year-old daughter when they came across the chaotic scene. Feeling that the assaulted girl would be more comfortable in the company of a woman, Doran asked her to stay with Lisa until help arrived. Kraft and her daughter comforted Lisa, and meanwhile another motorist followed the cutlass and tracked the man who'd hurt the children, but he lost him in traffic. Chief Doran was a trained first responder, and he too attended to Randy. While he wasn't sure if the 12-year-old would survive his injuries, he spoke kindly to him, reassuring Randy that he was strong and he would get through this. East Lansing police tracked the license plate number and identified Donald Eugene Miller as the owner of the vehicle. Around 4 p.m., about 40 minutes after he left the crime scene, police spotted him arriving at his girlfriend's apartment. He was taken into custody without incident. Randy and Lisa were both hospitalized, Randy for five days and Lisa for three days. They survived the horrific attack and bear both physical and emotional scars from their ordeal. I want to take a second to tell you about this new subscription box service called Hunt a Killer. Maybe you've heard of it. People are obsessed. Hunt a Killer sends a package to your home each month. It's full of creepy correspondence from their killer curator. He's a little like Hannibal Lecter, and he's got a mystery for you to solve. Each month, you receive new clues, letters, articles, objects, tools all adding to an ongoing murder mystery. 
It's up to you to solve it, along with other members all working together in online communities. It's the perfect thing for an armchair detective looking to put their sleuthing skills to the test. You can join by logging on to huntakiller.com and applying for membership. Huntakiller is growing so fast they have to limit new members to 500 a week. Once you apply and are approved for membership, you will receive a private link to subscribe. Each month, a package arrives at your door. Waiting is the hardest part. Hunt a Killer has been featured in BuzzFeed, Fast Company, and on Bustle. It's forming a cult-like community of sleuths and amateur detectives. If you love poring over creepy codes, ciphers, and clues, Hunt a Killer is for you. Treat yourself, or maybe you know someone that would love to receive it as a gift. Don't forget, Mother's Day is next month. To help support Already Gone, Hunt a Killer has offered a 10% discount for our listeners. Use the code ALREADYGONE and get 10% off. That's www.huntakiller.com and the code is ALREADYGONE. Good hunting. Miller's girlfriend defended him, saying there was no way he could have done those things. Not possible. Not the Donald Miller she knew. Rumor has it that when she was presented with the overwhelming evidence of his guilt, she packed up her things and moved away. Now, law enforcement had a bit of a conundrum. They had Miller in custody on the attempted murder and rape charges in the attack on the Gilbert children. What they did not have was evidence against him in the Choquette murder, or the locations of the remains of the three women that they were sure he had murdered. In 1978, Don Miller went on trial for the August 15th attacks. The trial was not held in Ingham County, where he was suspected of four murders, nor was it held at Eaton County, where he was accused of assaulting two children in their home. A venue change was granted, moving proceedings to the southwest corner of the state, the rural community of St. Joseph's. During the trial, Miller and his attorneys pushed the diminished capacity defense, saying that Miller was ill. He thought people were demons, and he saw the demons and needed to destroy the demons, which was why he attacked the two children. The jury heard testimony from Lisa Gilbert about how Donald Miller had taken a break from assaulting her to draw the drapes and lock the front door. He didn't want to be interrupted, hardly the actions of a man possessed. A judge advised the jury that if they found Miller guilty by reason of mental defect, he would be treated in a psychiatric facility and released when the treatment was over. The jury found Miller guilty of all charges and sentenced him to 30 to 50 years for rape and assault. This was good news. A violent, unbalanced predator was off the street. However, the families of the three women, Martha Sue Young, Michigan State University student Wendy Bush, and middle school science teacher Christine Stewart, they had no answers. The bodies of their loved ones were missing. A decision was made to offer Miller a plea. 10 to 15 years in the deaths of Young, Stewart, and Bush if Miller reveals the locations of the three bodies. Miller and his attorneys agreed to this offer, and in July of 1979, Almost a year after his trial, he pled guilty to killing the women and took a break from his time in prison to go for a ride with law enforcement. Miller didn't even need to exit the car. He simply told them where to go and gestured to the locations where each body was concealed. He hadn't forgotten where they were, 
he was easily able to point out each place. I need to mention that the sentencing system in Michigan was a bit of a mess at this point. Even though he was given a 10 to 15 year sentence for three murders, it didn't add anything on to the amount of time he would serve. Because of mandatory time off for good behavior, it appeared that Miller would be released from prison in 1999. Between 1989 and 1997, Miller went before the parole board several times, and each time he was denied. It was as he approached that 20-year mark that people started to worry. In 1997, the Michigan Victims Alliance decided they needed to be proactive about his impending release. They called upon professionals from judges to doctors to prison officials to see if anything could be done about Miller. No one wanted him back on the street. Miller wasn't mentally ill. He was an evil man who would kill again if he was given the chance. Now, Miller did serve his time as well as could be expected, although I've read online in multiple places that he is a very creepy man and no one wanted to bunk with him. I also saw that Miller, who was a regular churchgoer before his arrest, really immersed himself in religion and totes a Bible along constantly in prison. The skinny, dark-haired man with glasses was up for parole, and they couldn't find a good reason to deny it. So these professionals worked together and went through his prison record page by page, hoping for something they could use to keep him off the streets. And they discovered that years earlier, Miller was caught with a weapon in his cell. At the time, two years was taken from his earned good behavior. That was the consequence for the weapon. The prosecutor decided to try him in criminal court for the offense. Miller was found guilty. This was his third felony, and because Michigan has a habitual offender statute, the court tacked 20 to 40 years onto his sentence. But my friends, I have to tell you, 1999 was almost 20 years ago. In 2016, Miller was once again up for parole. Sue Young, the mother of Miller's one-time fiancé and first victim, Martha Young, she died in 2014, and I'm confident that had she been alive, she would have led the charge to keep Miller in prison. Back in 2005, Sue Young, who I shared a clip from at the beginning of this episode, published a book about her daughter's murder, Lethal Friendship, A Mother's Battle to Put and Keep a Serial Killer Behind Bars. The book is available on Amazon.com, and I'll post a link on the website. This time, the family of Kristen Stewart was spurred to action at the thought of Miller being paroled. Stewart's parents, Ken and Margaret Gusky, they reached out to their friends and family in Port Huron, where they'd raised Kristen and six other children. They asked for help in contacting the parole board. The response was immediate. People that had grown up with Chris, including her classmates from Port Huron Catholic High School, circulated a petition at their 50th class reunion. Randy and Lisa Gilbert, who were attacked by Miller in 1978, applauded the decision to keep Miller in prison. Lisa Gilbert has since married and lives out of state, but her brother remains in the area and he is disappointed that anyone would consider releasing Miller. The Michigan Department of Corrections received more than 50 letters regarding Miller's parole, including one from Cheryl Kraft Haddock. Cheryl's mother had stopped to help the Gilbert children that August afternoon, and Cheryl saw firsthand the trauma experienced by Miller's victims. Many letters were sent, but few, if any, were favorable. On September 30th, 2016, it became official. 
61-year-old Donald Eugene Miller was denied parole. He is eligible again in 2021. Miller admitted to murdering four women and was found guilty of the assault on Randy Gilbert and the rape of Lisa Gilbert. I'm comfortable with him remaining in prison for the rest of his life. We can only hope that the parole board feels the same way. This concludes Serial Killer Month on Already Gone. In May, I'm attending the Missing in Michigan event at Madonna University. I'm looking forward to speaking with the families and investigators handling missing persons cases from all over our state. May will also take us someplace new with a missing persons case out of Quebec, and later in the month, we'll take a look at a very recent missing persons case from the Detroit area. If you'd like to talk about this case or others, please join our Facebook group, the Already Gone Podcast Discussion Group. Make a request and you will be added by one of our lovely moderators. I'm also planning my first Michigan meetup at 1 p.m. on Saturday, May 13th in the Lansing area. Haven't yet nailed down a location, but I'll share that information on Facebook, Twitter, and in upcoming episodes. I will be at Indianapolis Crime Con June 9th through the 11th. If you are attending, please stop by and see me at Podcasters Row. It sounds like it's going to be a great event. There are still tickets for CrimeCon, and you can get them at a discount with the code A-L-R-D-Y-G-O-N-E-20. That's A-L-R-D-Y-G-O-N-E-20. This gives you 20% off. Also, if you're attending in a group of five or more, there's additional discounts available to you. Please support this week's sponsors. Hunt a Killer has offered a 10% discount for our listeners. Use the code ALREADYGONE and get 10% off. That's www.huntakiller.com and use the code ALREADYGONE. Also, BlueApron.com. Get your first three meals free with free shipping. Visit BlueApron.com slash ALREADYGONE. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Finally, if you haven't had a chance to review the show, please do so. It helps other listeners hear these stories. Big thank you to Stopited, Mugs131, Nessie Soros, Polo Kenny, Lindsay the Librarian, Josie Rosie Tozy, love that, etc., 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 ALH1980, S1 trillion. Okay, math is hard, and I hope that's the right number. And if it's not the right number, I'm very sorry. Clotta Rose, Podcast Madness, Dr. Frank, and Nava Be Good for your reviews. Thank you. Our music is by another Michigan artist, the talented Luke Superior. You can find him on SoundCloud. My name is Nina Instead. I am the creator, writer, and voice behind Already Gone. I appreciate you listening, and please, be safe.
loading up on things from Walmart? Yeah, I used my new Capital One Walmart Rewards card. It earns unlimited 5% back on everything I buy from Walmart online. Say what? 5% back. Say what? 5% back. Say what now? 5% back. With what? The Capital One Walmart Rewards card. Earn unlimited rewards, including 5% back at Walmart online on top of Walmart's everyday low prices. What's in your wallet? Terms and exclusions apply. Capital One N.A.